That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. Well, that's what she said. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the latest edition of That's What She Said with Sarah Spain. I am Sarah Spain. Excited for you to hear my interview today. I say that every week because I'm always excited because I only have awesome people on the podcast. But this week is uh, SportsCenter anchor L. Duncan. And I've said on this podcast before numerous times that one interesting thing about working for ESPN but being out of Chicago is that I work with a lot of people that I never meet. I am on the radio with them, hosting with them. I'll talk to them via the television. <laughs> and that's the case with Elle is, you know, I've had her on shows or I've been on SportsCenter and, uh, I think I met her once briefly in person on SportsCenter. Um, but then, you know, you hear so much about these people and you watch their work all the time and you wonder what their deal is. And so I was like, what's the deal with Elle? She seems awesome. And she is. So I had her on the pod and you can hear all about her story, which uh, is a little bit more similar to mine, I would say, than a lot of other people who have been on the pod, mainly in that she did not grow up from a very young age already knowing that she wanted to be in sports. In fact, it was just wanting to entertain. And so she had a more circuitous route to sports maybe than the average anchor. And um, it's just a cool chick to talk to. So I hope you guys enjoy the conversation. This is Elle Duncan. That's what she said. Happy to have as my guest this week, Elle Duncan, SportsCenter anchor and SportsCenter on Snapchat host. Elle, we've sort of like worked alongside each other, near each other, occasionally on the same shows for quite some time. But because we don't live in the same place, I feel like I don't really know you very well. So I'm excited to have you on the pod and to chat. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Sarah. I know I've been following you for a long time and um, I stalk you on the Levitard show because <laughs> if there's appointment television in my home, it is a Levitard show. Yes, that is my husband's favorite show on ESPN. Love it. The fact that his wife's on a show on ESPN. Yes. So well, that's at least something. My husband doesn't even like really watch any. I mean, he loves sports, but he hates sports radio. So that's my one show. <laughs> and he's not really into watching any like talking heads either. So basically, he's like, when someone will ask him if he saw something, he'll be like, eh, she produces a lot of content. That's his way of saying no. I I haven't seen any of it. That's fine. It's like fine. Such a great way to say like, uh, no, I don't really care. Um, I don't care. Yeah. Uh, well, let's start all the way back. So like, tell me about your childhood. Where'd you grow up and what kind of kid were you? I grew up in uh, a few parts. I was born and raised in Marietta, Georgia, and then we moved to Jacksonville, Florida for my middle school years. And then we moved back to Georgia for my high school years. And, um, God, I was one of those cliche, like, kids who was always, uh, you know, interviewing her baby dolls mm-hmm. and was super precocious. Um, I played a lot of sports, but when I wasn't doing that, I was forcing people um, to act out, like, plays that I would write. And I just was kind of that typical kid that you think of when you think of someone who's doing something in the public eye like a bit of like attention craved and um, and all of those things that you can imagine kind of built into one. I mean, I was, uh, you know, super into sports, but um, I also had a really creative side. So I loved to make things and build things and do art. I loved to read. I was like the spelling bee champ for the county of Cobb County when I was nice. in sixth grade. Yeah, I always wanted to just, you know, try to be as diverse as I could in terms of like what I was bringing to the table. My dad always taught me, you know, no matter who the conversation is with, you want to be able to like eloquently speak and contribute. And so uh, sports and athletics were just as important as the educational part. So, yeah, but I was crazy, you know, ADD, off the chain, always called into the <laughs> principal's office. It was bad. 
Why did you guys move around when you were younger? Just my dad. Um, he got <clears throat> transferred to Florida. Really didn't want to move his family from Atlanta, but you know how that goes. A good opportunity for him, a raise. At the time, my mom was a stay-at-home mom. Um, kind of a bit of a situation with a, a nanny when I was a kid. Um, hmm. My mom went right back to work, uh, as many moms have to do, and she had two kids. And um, a nanny of mine apparently had had some troubles of her own conceiving and maybe got a little bit too close to me. Um, oh, wow. And and had given my mom some feelings that there might be uh, an opportunity to take me. <laughs> oh, a little hand that rocks the cradle action. A little hand that rocks the cradle action. And then, like, the lady at the very least, was very open about that and was like, listen, I, I probably love her a little bit too much Aww. and I think it's becoming unhealthy. Uh, it scared the heck out of my mom. Yeah. And so she decided to stay at home with us for many, many years and give up her professional career. So my dad was the breadwinner at the time and he was like, it's a great opportunity for my family. We lived in Jacksonville for three years and that was enough, Sarah Spain. <laughs> knock on Jacksonville. I'm sure it's a great place now. At the time, uh, it just wasn't really us. So yeah. he looked for any opportunity to get us back to Georgia. Man, that's such a sad story. It's scary and it's sad. Like the self, you know, awareness of, of warning your mother that those feelings were happening. Uh, that's tough. Um, so you're back in Atlanta in high school and, mm-hmm. uh, and what sports did you play? What were you into by the time you got a little older? Yeah, I was, uh, super into fast pitch softball. I played softball my whole life. My sister played softball. She played basketball. I did gymnastics. I did swimming. I did ballet, um, but by the time I had gotten older, I really just wanted to kind of focus on one sport. Um, and to be honest, in Georgia and the kind of softball that we were playing was a full-time thing anyway. Practice three times a week, traveling every single weekend to various parts of the country to play This tournaments. is outside of school then? Outside of school, okay. yeah. So, um, so yeah, it was school, it was practice three times a week, and then my poor parents had absolutely no life because they were either shuffling my sister to Columbus, Ohio for a tournament or me to Florida for a tournament. Um, sometimes we'd overlap and be in the same city, rarely ever though. Uh, so that was really like my high school life was uh, traveling for softball and uh, and, and just, you know, ha- trying to maintain some type of part-time job. So I had what I like to call tricking off money. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and that's really it. I mean, my entire life I'm pretty much I associate with a softball field I've seen most of the country because of softball and you were a singer in high school too right I did I did like musical theater um I did the Lion King where Sarah I started Rafiki nice. and mostly because I had like I was the only person in the school that could do just an average Jamaican accent and when I tell you <laughs> average it was so incredible all right bad. let me hear a little Oh, my God. It was like, <laughs> I mean, it was essentially like, you know, Simba, you must be able to do your thing. Like, it was so <laughs> bad. Like, it was it was awful. But it, I at least attempted it and no one else did. So I was Rafiki nice. in The Lion King. Um, right after I got out of high school, actually, I pursued a little bit of a singing career for about 10 minutes and uh, <laughs> got a record deal. And I, I spent like a month, like, working on my first performance, right? Like, I'm going to do this performance at this club. What in kind Atlanta. of music was it? It was like R&B music, okay. R&B pop, if you will. Um, got backup dancers. We rehearsed for weeks. I had written my own song. You know, I had it produced, and I was ready. And I go out there, and it was the worst performance, like to the point where <laughs> my own parents couldn't lie to me. Like, Oh, no. Oh, no. Like, I legitimately was like, how did I do? And they were like, you're so brave. Like, way to go for just 
stepping out of your comfort zone. <laughs> Why was it so uh, bad? Where do you want to go eat? Yeah. <laughs> it was so bad. It just was bad. I just realized, I think, do you remember those moments in your life, Sarah, when you're kind of like, okay, I'm pretty decent at something and everyone wants it to be more than it is. Mm-hmm. That's what singing was for me. It was like, right. I liked singing and it was fun. I liked writing music. I liked being in a studio and collaborating with people and, and literally like watching someone make a beat and then me contributing lyrics to it and seeing the whole thing come together. People, I think, told me I was a better singer and performer um, than I was. And I kind of believed them. Um, and, uh, and I kept hearing, like, you should do something with this. So I tried. But I realized very quickly, this is a hobby. Like, this is, I like to walk around my house and sing. You know, I like to write down thoughts. Um, I enjoy music. I don't want this to be a career. I'm not built for that. It takes a whole other kind of person. And Mm -hmm. it took me, you know, very early on to realize, oh, no, this is, (laughs) this is not me in any way. I'm not a performer. I'm not a singer. Um, I'm just someone who enjoys it as a hobby and can hold a tune okay. So I go now and star where I I feel like I belong, which is karaoke. So that was right after, first of all, what's your go-to karaoke jam? Oh, my God. I always open up with the same thing. Um, and it's uh, uh, Shoot by uh, Salt and Pepper. Nice. My husband and I sang that at our wedding with our band. Are you serious? Yes. Yeah. That's that's oh one my of my God. go-tos. My my solo go-to is uh, nothing but a G thing. I do the Dre and Snoop parts because I had to get surgery on my vocal cords, so wow. I can't really sing anymore. I can only rap. So, um, so, yeah, we had this 80s and 90s hip-hop cover band at our wedding called Two White Crew. And they aren't actually all white, but that's what they name themselves because the lead singer is 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 white. And uh, they do all the best '80s and '90s hip hop. And so then they were like the backing band, and we did uh, we did Shoop together. And then my girlfriend and I and a couple other friends did uh, What a Man for my husband and, and the and the guys in the crowd. So it was a good time. We have to we have to hit up some I, karaoke together. No, we still have to, especially because like I know almost no one who Shoop is like their. Oh their yeah, song. everyone. Well, and it's like, got some tough parts where like you know most of it, but then you have to do the like. Then I flip dip back into my bag of trips, make me flip for a bit, make me want to do tricks for him, lick him like lick a lollipop like should a lollipop be licked. Yeah. Lick. It's yes. tough, though. That's it's the tough part. It That's is. the one that when you're just singing in the car, you just kind of, a lollipop should be licked. Yes. But like if you have someone who knows it, then you can go back. You know, you can really get it done. The problem, too, is, as you know, with karaoke, sometimes they're not always where they're supposed to be. Like they don't light the word up, right? No, so you can't use the words in karaoke. You need to know the song well enough that you don't look at the screen. The screen will throw you off, especially in rap. That's like the key. Every time, right? Yes. Um, All right, so you're done with the music after your 10 minutes. Uh, What did you, did you go on to college and and change what your focus was? I did. I went to to college, but I was only in college for about a year and a half. Um, I was a broadcasting major. Where was that? And I was really, I was a mass call major and specialized in broadcasting. West Georgia, okay. um, which is just like a small state school that's damn near in Alabama, total drive <laughs> county. So in order for us to like in college go and get booze, we'd have to go to Alabama to get it. I mean, it was just a total, you know, commuter school. No one was there on the weekends. It wasn't the real college experience. I probably regret that more than anything is that I didn't get that full college experience. Um, I was more concerned with like getting the hell out of college and getting on with my career. Right. Why did and, you um, choose that school? To be honest, because <laughs> it was just far enough away to where I didn't have to live at home, but it was close enough to where I could run home <laughs> and see my right. family. So you just weren't um, ready yet for that. 
Yeah, I wasn't ready to like move to the other side of the country and not see my family except for at spring break and holidays. And um, I, I couldn't get into UGA. Uh, the grades weren't there. So I, I just decided to go to West Georgia. Um, it was a full ride because there's this thing called the Hope Scholarship in Georgia. So they pay for any state school. And uh, <clears throat> so, you know, my parents were like, listen, I for I decided to forego getting a scholarship in athletics, I had some offers in softball and they were like, okay, well, that's fine, but we're not just going to, you're not going to turn down free money. So you're going to go someplace that's going to pay for your school if you're going to turn down um, athletic scholarships. And uh, so I landed at, at West Georgia with the full intentions of knowing, like for me, and I think in this industry in particular, if you know what you want to do, you understand that the degree itself um, doesn't mean uh, as much as it does, right? If you're trying to become a lawyer or a doctor, I mean, you either have it or you don't. And I know people who have had, uh, who have no degrees, who are doing really well in broadcasting and those who went to some of the best journalism schools in the country and are also excelling or can't get a job. So I just felt like there were so many different factors that goes into whether you get a job in broadcasting. Um, and I landed one, I got a job while I was still in school. So I left and I was a huge a huge thing in my family because, it, you know, it wasn't like I was first generation college student. I mean, my family is master's degrees and doctorates and like it wasn't, <laughs> there was never an intention or a plan to not get a degree from college, but my parents had a lot of faith in me and they said, here's the deal, pursue that, leave college. But the second you don't have a job in broadcasting, you have to go back and get your degree. That mm. was the deal we made. And luckily I've been working ever since, since I was 20. So yeah, never had to go back. So was the first gig with Two Live Stews or with Ryan Cameron? It was with Two Live Stews, yes. Those guys helped me out too. They actually, um, for a full week, put me as a guest uh, at the Super Bowl to get me into Radio Row with a pass. And I didn't, I was never a guest on their show. I was a complete nobody. But I I had a friend, Raj, who worked for them and for alongside me at FS1. And so uh, that way I could get in there and set up a, at a blank, at an empty table and, and interview people for my own stuff. So I love those guys. <laughs> so cool. Yeah. Wow. That's super. Yeah. Like they're, they're great. And they were, uh, they're obviously some characters, as you know, it was a really cool opportunity. I didn't get paid to do their show. I mean, it was basically a paid internship. I got to be on air. Um, so I worked at a hair salon and I would take an hour lunch break, go over, do their show for an hour and then go back. Wow. Um, yeah, but I just knew, I knew it would be my first kind of, you know, I was 20. I was like, this will be my first touch at radio and getting a chance to learn. And, um, like you said, just get your chops up a little bit. And then that led to Ryan Cameron, the job doing that. And just like pretty much everything in my life, Sarah, like there was never, I always signed on to do something as something else with the hopes that it would turn into something else. So with Ryan, it wasn't like he hired me as his co-host. I mean, I was the traffic girl. I was getting paid $20,000 a year to go and do traffic. But I knew that Ryan always talked to the people that were on his show, even if they were just traffic. So I did that job knowing that, like, I'll have an opportunity to talk and have reach of, like, millions of viewers because he had a huge show in Atlanta. And eventually that turned into you know, kind of becoming a, his sidekick. And then it turned into my own radio show. And then it, so, um, but yeah, like it was never supposed to be, you know, me having this like big radio career. It was just supposed to be, you know, me telling you where the traffic was on I-85. Right. Getting your foot in the door too and understanding the business. So when you were um, originally getting into college and studying broadcast, what was the dream then? What What did you think it would look like for you to have success at what you hope to do? You know what, honestly, I really just, 
I think that's where a lot of the, you know, deciding to do singing. And I even spent six months of pilot season um, uh, out in L.A. because I wanted to be an actress because I had done theater my whole life. And I think what I finally came to the conclusion was as a grown up and in college was, you know, you just want to be be paid to be yourself. Like the idea of, of sitting behind a desk was, um, was never anything that I wanted to do. And so I think I just finally realized that like you love sports, you love talking, you love communicating with people, you love telling stories. Like this is more you than pretending to be someone you're not right. Pretending to be an actress or pretending to be a performer on stage. Like you really just want to have a job where you can be yourself. And that's all it looked like. Um, obviously, ESPN was such a huge part of the fabric of my life because I was such a sports fanatic and I loved Robin Roberts. There were so many ties with Robin Roberts growing up. Her father and my grandfather served together in Tuskegee. My grandmother knew Robin Roberts when she was a little kid living in Tuskegee. Um, And my grandmother and her mother were great friends. And then she actually worked at the same radio station that I worked at in Atlanta. And and so I always kind of grew up admiring her and, and loving her. Oprah, obviously, for most girls. Um, and so I just, I, I had hoped that wherever kind of my career would take me, it would take me on a path where I could just unapologetically be myself and that be okay. And, uh, and that's kind of essentially where I'm at right now. So whenever someone says like, well, what does the future look like for you at ESPN? I'm like, listen, beyond the work that it took just to get here. I mean, I want to continue to get better and grow, but I just want to continue to be able to be at a place that allows me um, and gives me permission to just be myself. And uh, I'm in that, you know, that current role right now. And we'll see what that looks like five years from now. Yeah, it sounds like everything was sort of entertaining people, right? Whether that's through Correct. music or acting yes. or, yeah, that's the yes. same for me. I originally moved out to L.A. to do acting and I enjoyed it, but I I saw how much better people were at inhabiting others and how good I was yes. at improving and responding as myself. And I was like, okay, I get it now. Yes. I want to entertain, but I want to do it as me instead of as someone yes. else. And um and then and then exactly. and then when you get the confidence and the validation from peers and bosses that who you are is good and something people want and it's entertaining and interesting, then it just all takes off, right? It's so much easier. But early on, that's a tough sell, right? Because you're basically doing PR for for yourself, right? Exactly. Buy this product, yes. it's me. I'm awesome. Like, right? Don't I'm you guys so all good. think so? Right. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm not self-aggrandizing, and I really hate promoting my. Like, I'm not good at promoting self-promotion. I'm not good at any of those things. And so I always thought, well, it would be better if I could play a character Mm. because then I could kind of like shift responsibility to that character. But you're right. Once you realize, okay, I just want to entertain and I want to entertain being myself. That validation is really emboldening for sure. And hearing people say like, your personality is enough on its own um, throughout the years has kind of given me like a path to continue to pursue that. I love that. So you bounced around a lot. So you, like you mentioned, you then had your own show at the station. Then you were doing sports reporting for another show. Um, you contributed to Atlanta Falcons radio, pre and post Atlanta Hawks sideline reporting, mm-hmm. freelance reporting for SEC and ACC football games on Comcast Sports South. Then you went mm-hmm. back to be a traffic reporter in 2012. And when I read about that was that once again, you took that job because you wanted to do the sports side. They weren't going to hire you for sports. And so you were doing free sports as a, as a traffic <laughs> reporter. Yeah, I was. Yeah. She, she wanted to hide. They were looking for traffic and that's all they had the budget for. And as you know, with local sports, uh, they're not on a hiring frenzy exactly. And they had had 
two really long term and long time kind of guys in those positions. And I told her, listen, I'll come and do this for you. um, But you do me a favor. Just give me one day a week. You don't have to pay me. Give me a camera dude and give me a few hours. Give me five minutes on air um, on Wednesday or Thursday nights to run a package. And let me just cover sports on my own. She said, okay, just to work fair, we're not going to pay you like an extra dollar <laughs> and it'll mean really long days for you. Yeah. Um, I got to work at 3 a.m. and Falcon's availability and by the time we would wrap packages would be about 6.30 p.m. I was like, that's not a problem. Um, and so that's what I did. And I, you know, <clears throat> I was under the belief that if I could just put enough of a tape together to make it look like I was like the sports director <laughs> at the right. place I worked, no one else would know. And uh, and that's what I did. So I did my full-time job five days a week. And, you know, one or two days a week, I'd go up to Flowery Branch or I'd go cover the Braves. Um, and I would put these packages together. And once it was all said and done, and I was a couple of years into my contract, I had enough of a reel to where it looked like I was the main sports anchor at 11 Alive, even though that was not the case at all. And then you used that to get to Nesson. Yes put that reel together and I sent that to Nesson and they brought me up for a couple of auditions and then um, I got that job and uh, I kind of did the same thing. I mean, I think I was, if there's anything that I would say worked well for me is that I was always really calculated. Like I never went in like, oh, I always went in with a plan. Like, okay, I'm going to do this for two years and then I'm going to see what's next. That's right. what I did with the traffic reporting in Atlanta. And that's what I did with Nesson. I signed a two year deal and I said, I'm going to go in here, and my goal is to learn as much as I can and to uh, to do as much as I can in two years and come up with another reel. And I honestly didn't know after two years that that would be enough to get me an audition at ESPN. That was the hope. Uh, that's always the hope, I think, for any sports journalist. But I went in there and did that. You know, I tried to do as much as I learned about hockey. I'm from Georgia. Nobody knows. But like, we, don't, <laughs> we don't care. We, we've traded our team away twice. Like, it's just not a thing. And I learned about hockey and I learned about people holding you accountable because Boston sports certainly does. And, and their fan acumen is through the roof and they take it very seriously. And I always joke that like a Gronk knee injury will lead the news over like a five alarm fire. Like it, right. Like they care so incredibly much and they hold you accountable. So I learned, I wanted that. I wanted to be battle tested. I wanted to come from a place like Atlanta where you could just, create storylines and people would believe you um, to a place like Boston where (laughs) history is important as what you know now and um, you have to be credible and you have to be willing to take your lumps too. And I certainly did my fair share of that. Uh, And after two years, I put that reel together and I sent it to ESPN and I got an interview, I got an audition and uh, they called me three weeks later that I got the job. I didn't even know what I was auditioning for at ESPN. I had no clue. They just called me and it turned out it was for SportsCenter. So back at Nesson, I want to ask you, you know, uh, I got an offer kind of early on to move to New York and do radio out of New York. And I would be I was just doing updates in Chicago and New York. I would get to be hosting. And obviously it was a huge step up. But I turned it down not only because I didn't want to live in New York, but to me, there's something very special about being in Chicago and covering the teams I know. It's also more yeah. comfortable. Now I'm just doing national. So I'm, I've kind of stepped away from that comfort zone. But there was a real fear for me of going to New York and not having this deeply embedded understanding and connection with the fans and with the teams. What was that like for you to go from Atlanta to Boston, where clearly you don't have that history and where, as you've pointed out, people are so dedicated to their sports? Because for me, that would be a really scary leap. It was. It was well. It was scary for a lot of reasons. It was scary because I didn't have 
a comfort factor with the uh, with the teams, but also because, as you know, Atlanta and Boston couldn't be any different in terms of the makeup of the right. city. Culturally, I yeah. Salt, right? Culturally, um, I didn't know anything about Boston. I didn't know a soul that lived there. In fact, I had never been to Boston until I went for my audition. Um, so it was really scary. But what I did was just, I listen, I read. I mean, I read like hell. I read before my auditions. I read after my auditions and I'm talking about, I read, you know, Bobby Orr's books and mm-hmm. I would read um, about <clears throat> Esposito and I'd read about the old time Bruins and I would read books about Ted Williams and because I, I, you know, understanding what's going on right now with Boston, like as a sports fan, I know who they are in terms of what they mean in the sports landscape currently. But I, where I struggled and suffered was understanding the history and why the fans feel this way and why they feel so passionate. So I kind of went on a mission of just learning the history of Boston sports and the times when the Patriots were terrible and you could walk up and, you know, buy a seat for $15 and sit 50 yard line, second row. Like I wanted to learn about that part of Boston which I felt like would help me in terms of understanding the fan base better. So that's what I did. I mean, for months, even after I got the job and before I moved, all I did was read and ask questions and talk to people. And, um, and I felt like that helped prepare me as much as I could be prepared for that. What I wasn't prepared for was, was with Boston was, as I said, even though I knew going in, it would be quite different. I don't think I was fully prepared for how different Boston was, um, as a town from Atlanta, I'd only ever lived in Atlanta and to go from one of the most diverse and, and I, and I'll say it like blackest cities in the country um, to go totally out of your comfort zone where there'd be times where you wouldn't see another black person for like days when I first moved there um, was just very different. You know, the traffic was different. Taking a, public transportation was different snow was different houses on top of each other was different we don't have multifamily homes in atlanta that's not how that works um everything was different the cost of living was different uh the kind of slow sleepy southern thing that even a major city like atlanta has it was so different in boston and uh and that really shook me to my core more than the sports did because i knew the sports i could control but the city element of it and and changing an entire like landscape of the city that surprised me and and was hard for me for really the entire time I was there. People sometimes talk about code switching, you know, African-Americans who end up in a space where they feel like they have to try to sort of assimilate with white culture. Did you feel like when you left Atlanta, you had to significantly change who you were either on camera or off or both in order to make sure that you were more appealing to a different audience or different culture? Absolutely not. And, uh, you know, that's the benefit of getting a new job when you're 30 years old. You know, I wasn't um, I never felt like I needed to be anybody different. And I think maybe that's where some of the pushback came, or maybe that's where some of um, the anxiety came for me is that I was like, listen, my goal, as I said before, was to try and be there for a couple of years and do what I could. I was never going to let a place change me. I'd spent 30 years being who I was and I was never going to let a place change me. And I think some of that anxiety is why it was difficult for me because I was like, listen, you're either going to like me for who I am or you're not going to like me for who I am, but you're definitely going to get an authentic version of me. And, um, you know, the thing about Georgia is, although it's obviously a very, you know, black city, um, it's, it's really, you know, 60, 40 in terms of white to black, 60% white, 40 black, um, and those numbers are obviously super off, but you know, this is just me like guesstimating numbers, right. obviously a huge Hispanic population. So I had always grown up around 
different types of people. I'd always grown up around white people. I think the difference is, is that in a place like Boston for me, it felt like in Atlanta, if I went to a place and I was the only black person in the room, they see black people all the time. We're everywhere. So it wasn't exactly like it was shocking to see a black person in a room filled with white people. And Boston, it felt different. It felt like I knew I was the only black person in the room and everybody else knew I was the only black person in the room as well. It just always felt like a subplot to everything I did and everywhere I went. Like it was acknowledged, you know, and um, and that was my experience. And that was the experience of a lot of people I knew that had lived in Boston and had kind of told me that uh, before I moved there. Um, and so it just felt... It just felt, and some of it, listen, at some point you're paranoid to the point where you probably. Totally. Yeah. You know what I mean? Part, it, yeah. Part of it's there and part different. of it's also that you're, Correct. you're believing it to be there even when it's not. Right. Exactly. So, and I have to fully understand that. And I think that's where the frustrating part came, Sarah, is that I was like, oh my God, I don't want to think about this anymore. Like maybe they're just looking at me because they like my, my hair or they like my shoes but I'm just assuming they're looking at me because I'm the only black person here. And that just became, it's just taxing. And it's just, it just became, you know, something that was just a little bit too much for me to take. And while I loved the people that I worked with at Nesson, I really did. um, And I enjoyed elements of Boston um, immensely. It just got to a point where I was like, this is just, look, some places just aren't for people. And I just realized after a couple of years, this is not my place. Um, but I understand why people love Boston. I do. I totally understand why people love Boston. It just wasn't for me. So ESPN comes calling, and it sounds like it was necessary and needed. Uh, yeah. So you you go on an audition, and they sort of just pitch it to you as, hey, we've seen your work, and we like you. Do you want to come in and meet with us? Not for anything specific. Just uh, come in and, and see us. And it ends up being SportsCenter. Yes, exactly it. Yeah. They, my agent called me and was like, Hey, ESPN would like to meet with you. I was like, great. What's it for? He said, I have no clue. Just go. I'm like, right. It doesn't matter. I said, at this point, I don't care. I'll run prompter. Whatever. It's ESPN. <laughs> Drove down and I met with. It's the, the Ryan Reynolds of invites, right? Ryan Reynolds would like to see Seriously? you. For what? I don't ask questions. Just doesn't go. doesn't matter. It's Ryan Reynolds. <laughs> I'll be there. <laughs> That's exactly what it was. Um, and uh, and I got the best, like, shout out to Zubin Mahenti, who uh, we have we had the same agent at the time. And I called Zubin before my um, interviews and he walked me through every person I was going to be interviewing with and just told me a little bit about them and told me kind of, you know, their personalities and the things that would and would not work with them in terms of the personality that I bring. And he just gave me so much insight. And I walked in there and felt, you know, pretty prepared in terms of who I was going to be meeting with. Um, and then I got to actually do the audition with Zubin, who is like, the Zubik's Cube is fantastic, <laughs> he's the best. So um, so it went, you know, well. But, you know, you never know. It's like, I think it was cool, but I felt good about things before and didn't get them. And I felt awful about things and did. So uh, so I wasn't sure how it went. And I did my follow-up emails. And then, like I said, maybe three weeks later, I was uh, I was on the road in Atlanta about to see my family. And I got a call like, yo, you're going to be a sports center anchor. I was like, <laughs> What? <laughs> Say that again? What? Uh, it was surreal for sure. So it's only been about, I don't know, a year and a half, not quite two years yet. Um, yeah, two years in May. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what's it like joining SportsCenter in a current 
in the current sort of media climate because it is it's still the the main property that everyone associates with ESPN. It's still the place that people go for their highlights and their news and their and and their facts and everything else. But it's also such a highly criticized and scrutinized property right now because of the changing landscape. It is. I came in at a pretty tumultuous time in terms of that, like with just the narrative of ESPN in general, and then, of course, like the layoffs, and with SportsCenter, the real estate is shrinking. And so um, I think there's a lot of anxiety around SportsCenter right now because of it. You know, you've got – it is still such an important brand, and, and I think that we all know that. But at the same time, um, you know, ESPN is ambitious, and they're trying to do a lot of different things in terms of propping up their, their big names and big personalities, and I understand why. So um, – I think what we're trying to fight right now, Sarah, is the is the idea that somehow people don't care about highlights anymore and that we are an antiquated um, layout, like that our show is no longer relevant to young people because they'll just look at highlights. I don't think that's totally true. I mean, I think that we have to evolve in the same way that television in general has to evolve. Numbers in general are down across television, right? Like everyone's trying to figure out how to compete with the Netflixes of the world and the Who's of the world. Everyone's trying to figure out how to get people to watch live television. Um, And we're just trying to do the same thing. And I think that we've gone a couple of different directions, at least since I've been here in terms of it being very much about your opinion and then about it being very much about highlights. And I think everyone's just trying to find their pacing and figure out, uh, you know, what it is that we can bring because SportsCenter, unlike a lot of other television shows at ESPN, is not supposed to be about the host opinion. It's really not about you. It's not supposed to be about you. It's supposed to be about propping up your analysts and your experts and delivering news. Um, But we're all personalities on top of that as well. So we want to still be ourselves without making the whole show about us and still figuring out uh, how we can offer a highlight maybe you've seen on your phone in a better way, how we can still be palatable to young people, but not absolutely um, reverse course from the people who have been with us for many years. And so it is, I'd say there's a lot of anxiety around SportsCenter for sure. Um, But again, I'm very big on what are the controllables that you can control? And all I can control at this point is continuing to keep my head down and do my job. Like whatever the message is or whatever the focus is, um, I'm going to try to do the best that I can. Right now the focus is on highlights and movement, pace. Um, and I think we're doing a really good job of that. And I think that's reflecting in the numbers. And we'll kind of see, you know, what happens from here. But the whole point is that we constantly have to evolve, which is why working in like the digital sphere has been really cool for me as well, because they're constantly looking at how do we evolve and how do we move forward and how we how do we push forward and how do we become palatable to a, to a younger demo? Yeah, and that was my next question. So how has the Snapchat Sports Center sort of either opened up your eyes to the differences in the models and the audiences or even maybe changed the way you view the television version? Well, the, the audiences are so different. I mean, after my first like month of doing Snapchat, I started noticing like 12-year-olds following me on Instagram and Twitter. <laughs> I bet. Uh, there's even people that we work with that are like, my kid watches your Snapchat show every day and, and loves it. I'm like, how old's your kid? 11. I'm like, right. awesome. Um, it's good. It is. It's so unlike SportsCenter. It, it really only shares brand alone. I mean, it's similar to SportsCenter in that the whole point is to give you information. Um, but the pacing, I mean, we do a show that's between four and five minutes long, and it is 100% personality-based. I mean, it is 
absolutely about your opinion. Um, I could wax poetic about, you know, LeBron James uh, for my Snapchat show for five minutes and never mention a stat. I mean, and that's the point is that it's supposed to be what you think and, and it's supposed to move really quickly. It's supposed to, I'm kind of petty. So I take a bit of a petty take on a lot of things on my Snapchat show. And what I've been most pleased with is that it's been pretty successful and I think more successful than we had originally thought. And a lot of times that means that you get more cooks in the kitchen, right? And more people wanting to impose their will. And the offices have really let us, like left us alone. I mean, they, there's, there's a couple times I've been uh, reeled in and, and there's been things that have, you know, come down the pipe, like, don't say that, um, which is cool because uh, I am a habitual line stepper. Um, <laughs> but they've really let us do our thing and be creative and let us, they've let it be whatever we want it to be. And whatever it is changes daily and changes, uh, you know, according to who the host is. Um, but it's been so fun just to deliver sports in a totally different way than I normally would in five minutes. I'm ADD and it's a show that no matter how, you know, a short your attention span is, you can get through. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I love uh, my radio co-host Jason Fitz said when he came in there, they were like, all right, it's young audience. So, you know, uh, Damian Lillard is Dame Dalla. And he's like, yeah, I, I can't say that. I'm, I'm over 40 years <laughs> I'm old. I'm, he's like, I'm not saying tutties. I'm just going to say touchdowns. <laughs> um, so it's funny to like find that balance of right. How do you appeal to this younger audience, but still seem authentic? So he's still working his way through that. Um, so I, I just heard the awesome news that you are pregnant and you are having a little girl. So congratulations on that. Um, what are some of the excitements and the fears surrounding that? I suppose just more in a work capacity because we could talk for hours about just, you know, what it is to be the the mother to a human being. Uh, I have no idea. I only have dogs, but, um, you know, there's a lot of conversation about in every industry, what it means to be a working mother, what it means to take maternity leave. What are your thoughts as you're kind of thinking about that a few months in advance? Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to lie. I spent most of my adult life saying, okay, when would be the appropriate time to have a kid and get <laughs> married and do this? Because the job is so important. And for my whole grown-up life, my job has been the most important part of my life. It leaked into my personal life. You know, it was professional and personal had no had no boundaries because it was the most important thing and it cost me relationships. Um, and I'm glad that it did. I met someone, I met my husband and really all of those anxieties and panics and, and worries and fears that I had honestly went away. And I know that sounds so cool, but it's the truth because, um, I can now compartmentalize what work means and what family means. And I love and get so much value from what I do, but it is not the only source for me anymore of happiness. In fact, it is second. Um, my personal life is so great. And so he's really helped with a lot of the anxieties that have come because, you know, the, the problem and where I find myself, Sarah, is you're so busy trying to convince everyone else that your priorities will not change and that you shouldn't be treated any differently just because you're going to have a kid. Um, but then internally, it's a struggle because there's times where I'm like, well, hell, are my priorities going to change? I mean, I don't know. I, I would imagine that they would to some degree, like it's my child. I, I imagine that that baby is going to be more important, um, you know, than right. coming in to, to fill in on radio if they need me. Um, same time, like, I don't, I just don't know. And so I'm at this point where I am working a full load and continue to work a full load and expect to do that up until the time I give birth. Um, but I am anxious to see like, will things seem different? 
to me. And uh, I don't think I'll ever lose my ambition and uh, because I'm an ambitious person. And I respect greatly the women who stay at home with their children because it is many jobs wrapped up into one. And it's a thankless one at that. Right? You don't get adoration on Twitter. You also don't get the hate, but you don't get, <laughs> you don't get that. You don't get the, the paycheck. Um, you know, you simply get the satisfaction of, of raising your family. Um, but that's just not me. I, I mean, it's, it, there, there's in no way, shape or form that's never been me. I need to work. And, uh, and so I want the people that I work with to know that my ambition won't change. I will still have uh, the ambition to grow and get better and tackle more things, but that my priorities might change. Yeah. And, um, and I think the women are the only people that really have to answer for that. Men don't have to answer to that. As yeah, to their priorities I know. And, and I'm, and you know, I, I'm obviously asking because you're pregnant, but there's certainly guys I've had on the show that were soon to be having children that I didn't ask, what are your fears? Right. And, and it's right. too bad. It's, it's an unfortunate reality. All right. Before I let you go, you have to do the one thing that everybody does and no one expects. It's the Spanish Inquisition. Number one, what's the natural talent you wish you were gifted with? Ooh, uh, <laughs> um, playing a musical instrument. Not your jam. No, I suck. <laughs> I'm so bad at it. I can sing okay, but like nice. everything else is bad. Uh, number two, what's your Desert Island album? You can only have one. Ooh, um, I'm going to go with uh, Songs in the Key of Life, Stevie Wonder. Nice. Uh, number three, if you could switch lives with someone for a day, who would it be? Oh, man. Um, right now, I would switch lives with Ryan Coogler because just to see what it would be like to be 31 and with the world as your oyster, <laughs> um, man, dude, that would be that pretty would be cool. nice. Right? Uh, number four, what's the most scared you've ever been? Um, when I found out about a month ago that my, uh, my dad had cancer. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah. But no, we got a good prognosis and, uh, and he's going to be, he's going to be fine. But that was, that was rough. Number five, what would you consider your biggest failure? Uh, getting arrested, getting arrested for a, for a DUI. And I'm fortunate that the, that the charges were dropped, but um, I feel like I failed my family and I failed myself and I failed my coworkers. And I, I tried to do the right thing for so many years and I just, I slipped. And, uh, and, and that was a huge, a huge failure for me, especially because I gave leverage for the rest of my life to the haters to, right, to throw that back right. in my face. <laughs> it's good that you're willing to talk about it, though. You know, a lot of people kind of shove Always. down those things. Yeah, that's I no. mean, it means that you've come to a place where you, you know, you you accept it and you moved on from it versus, you know, hiding it because you won't take accountability, which a lot of people do with their failures. Absolutely. I take full accountability yeah. for my actions. You know, I lived in L.A. Everybody. It's it's uh, sad to say, but I I had so few people in my life that didn't have one. It's just, it's a, uh, it's a problem. You know, people get, yeah. people get complacent or they, they take it too, uh, too easily. Uh, yeah. Number six, what habit or quality do you think has contributed most to your success? Ooh, um, perspective, perspective. I think I have a really solid perspective on what things mean in life. And some of that is because of the things I've experienced um, maybe a little bit, you know, ahead of time that I should have, but uh I I always understand and am able to put place put things in the places that they belong. So I think perspective is, has helped me quite a bit. What's the thing about yourself you'd most like to improve? Um, it, my ability to like get things done. I mean, <laughs> Netflix grabs me, <laughs> and like other, I'm very easily distracted. And I would like to have a little bit more focus to be able to complete something. Like I'm 100% the procrastinator that gets the 
the thrill and the adrenaline of finishing something at the last possible second. I hate that about myself. Uh, Finally, what three words would you most hope that people would use to describe you? Ooh, um, okay. Uh, Congenial. Um, Is hardworking one word? Sure, we'll give it to you. (laughs) Can you give me the dash? Yeah, we'll give Um, it to you. Hardworking and... uh, and I would say authentic. Ooh, I like that one. I like authentic. Uh, and the bonus question, who would you recommend I have on this podcast? Ooh, who would I recommend you have on this podcast? Does it have to be someone from ESPN? No, of course not. Although um, I think you you- Elena Deladon yeah. said like Oprah and Ellen. And I was like, how about someone that might come on? <laughs> <laughs> um, just because I love her, but I don't know much about her background. And I think you what you accomplish so well with your podcast is really like, giving people a different look at people. I'd love for you to interview Issa Rae. From Ooh, I would like, love I just, to. Right? I would love to know more about her. I might have to go through uh, the guy who plays Lawrence because he follows me on Twitter. He's so fine Ooh. too. So I might just start yeah. with him and then try to work my way to Issa from there. Yeah. Also, I think, um, I think the Jamel is pretty cool with uh, Prentice Penny. Ooh, okay. Um, who is her showrunner and they're really good friends. I'm going to go through so, Jamel then. That's the way to do yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, it's always the way. Right? Yeah, go just have Jamel. Jamel ask her on her pod and then at the last second be like, oh, it's not mine. Sorry, miscommunication. It's Sarah's. Here you go. Have a good time. <laughs> well, awesome to talk to you, Al. Thank you so much. Thank you, Sarah. Well, that's what she said. This week's That's What She Read is actually an old story. And last year... In February, I was told that there was a freelance writer that was doing a piece for ESPNW named Andrew Kahn on a 97-year-old nun who was a big part of the Loyola men's basketball team. Now, keep in mind that at this time, Loyola Chicago was fine, but Chicago is not super into college basketball. There's so many people from so many parts of the country that all live in Chicago, and they're all fans of whatever team they came from. A lot of Midwest, Michigan, Michigan State, uh, Purdue, Illinois, Iowa, Notre Dame. And so there's fans, but they're all in their little pockets, and they go to their team bar, and the city just never really gets up for the for the March Madness tournament in any, in any meaningful way. So I don't know much about Loyola Chicago, but I'm like, all right, I'm in, I'm in on this story. They wanted me to go do an interview with this 97 year old nun to accompany the story that this fellow Andrew had written. So they gave me a preview of his story and I immediately was like, this woman sounds amazing. So I sat down, did this awesome interview when I love talking to her and she was so passionate about the Loyal Men's basketball team, about being their team chaplain, giving them pregame speeches, postgame notes. One year she welcomed the new coach of the team by handing him a folder that had breakdowns of each of the players on the team and what they should be working on in the offseason. I mean, she's really passionate about it. She's not just a figurehead of, you know, a nun who gives them kind words before they start. She's very dedicated. And um, the story by Andrew Kahn that goes along with the video I did is fantastic. So if you've been getting caught up in this sister gene of Loyola Chicago story as they continue to be a Cinderella in the tournament, then I highly recommend you go read this story. Um, one thing that kind of stands out for me that I'll just read for you quickly is the origin of sports in Sister Jean's life. This is what Andrew writes. Sports have always been a part of Sister Jean's life. She was born in 1919 and played basketball at her San Francisco high school in the 1930s. Back then, the court was divided into three sections for women, with no player being allowed to traverse the whole court and only certain ones could shoot. The game was so slow, Sister Jean said. And she continued her love of basketball throughout, and she had a crazy interesting life where she was 
teaching in schools, including teaching Bob Hope's children. Um, she's just got a very cool and interesting story. And if you've been following along as Loyola Chicago has won and following along with the cutaways to the ecstatic sister Jean, I highly recommend that you read the story. It's called The 97-Year-Old Nun Behind the Loyola Men's Basketball Team. And again, you can find it on ESPNW.com. Thanks, as always, for lasting about an hour with me.